Welcome to Unveiled Podcast. We, my name is Peg Peters. We are hosting a 10-part series uh, looking at the Charter Challenge in Canada to bring legal access to psilocybin, particularly for end-of-life cancer patients. And uh, Theracil is uh, working with a number of lawyers who are providing this Charter Challenge. But we're really looking at the background of what is, why should the Canadian public care about psychedelics and its healing potential? Uh, and how do we move the needle uh, publicly on understanding the beauty, history, and potential of these incredible substances? And uh, we are going to, we have a guest on today, Dr. Ingrid Pacey. Dr. Ingrid Pacey is a psychiatrist and uh, has graduated from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, graduating in 1972. And while she was in med school, she witnessed LSD psychotherapy in a psychiatric setting as part of her training, which is really fascinating. It's hard to find people from the old school days who have had that actually kind of training. So that's part of what uh, Dr. Pacey is involved with. She's now um, a, con a consultant. She's worked with Stan Groff uh, and Christina Groff in holotropic breathwork. And uh, she went on to pioneer the use of holotropic breathwork with trauma survivors and really worked with PTSD and uh, with, with particular women who've been sexually abused and trying to help people unburden their their trauma using these uh, uh, psychoactive uh, substances psilocybin mdma and, and lsd and so dr pacey brings a whole lifetime of experience into this conversation she's retired now from active practice but she continues to mentor therapists uh, interested in psychedelic therapy and speaks and writes about the rapidly growing field as we await the legalization of MDMA and psychedelics for therapy. Let's welcome to the show, Dr. Ingrid Pacey. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. Well, hello, Peg. It's, it's my pleasure to be here and to really talk about, you know, this topic, which now is very dear to my heart and mm. one that I, you know, support wholeheartedly. Mm. Well, Dr. Paisley, let's let's go back a bit because it's quite rare that I get to talk to someone who has actually had this training in the 70s. So it's almost like it feels like a lifetime ago, but what a yeah. resurgence now, right? All this training had to be almost buried and you couldn't kind of you know talk about it, but now here you are uh, yeah. at the end of your career and it's it's almost resurrecting. And what does that feel like as a, a person who was trained in the 70s? Well, can I just correct you? It was actually Please. in the 60s. 60s, okay. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I was in medical school in Australia in the 60s um, when LSD was, you know, just starting to emerge <clears throat> to the broader, broader knowledge. And at that point, it had been used, you know, with alcoholics and in other psychiatric settings. Mm. And so in medical school, during the psychiatric, you know, period of the training, we got to witness people being given LSD in a psych in the hospital setting mm. <clears throat> but I also had a friend who whose his father was a psychiatrist and he was using LSD as in a group therapy format mm. where there would be nurses present I mean it was very clinical in those days mm. so half the group would get LSD <clears throat> and then there would be nurses in the room so the people as they entered their sort of expanded states would both get you know, particular attention, but their openness helped open up the other people in the group. Wow. So, and that was my first LSD experience. Okay, let's get into that. Dr. Pacey, tell me about your first LSD experience. <laughs> you just got my attention. So yeah. what was that like? What year was that? Where were you? And tell me what happened. 
Well, I think it was, you know, probably 63 or 64. Mm. And as I said, it was in a clinical setting. It wasn't out in the woods, you know, seeing the sky. Um, you know, I was invited to see if I really wanted to experience this, and I agreed. And so in we were actually in a, in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So we were seen the night before, and then it was in a group meeting. So then in the morning, we were given LSD. I, I don't know what dose it was in those days. I, I had to trust the psychiatrist. How many people? Um, how many people are in your group setting? In that group, there were probably, I mean, they could have been up to 16. There were a lot of mm. people. Okay. So half, eight of us got LSD and half did not. And then it proceeded initially like a normal group therapy with people talking about their issues. Mm. They were all known to the psychiatrist. So he knew who they were. And, you know, I remember just the emotion, the mm. real getting down to the nitty gritty that happened almost immediately. You know, the, the people started talking about really very deep issues. And initially, as well as myself feeling this sort of openness towards everybody, um, I was listening. I was just so intrigued by the difference of this setting to, you know, more traditional group therapy. And what I found for myself was that I started to weep. And it was some sad weeping, but it was just a very large weeping for the human condition of the people in the group, for the larger context of the world. Um, and, you know, at the time, the, I couldn't describe much content. I just felt very open, very connected. And I remember I was held at a certain point, just as, as comfort. Um, and, you know, what, what hit me more was, you know, after the whole clinical setting, to be able to, you know, leave the room. And, you know, in those days, this was an old style mental hospital. So the grounds were gorgeous. There were trees and flowers. And so we were allowed to go outside. This was Australia and it was warm. And so I had this expanded kind of loving experience of being outside. I mean, now I have the language to say what I was having was a unit of experience, mm. like feeling one with the planet, with the earth, with the spirit realms, um, and really feeling Wow. It was a remarkable experience. And we, we, we then stayed the night in the hospital. And then the next morning, um, you know, we had another meeting just to see how everybody was. And then I remember when I left and, you know, went back home, went back to my friends, there was a sense, a different sense of being connected with everybody. Mm. Wow. See that on a basic level, life was simple. That it really is these interconnections with people that was the important thing in the world. And so all the dramas and complications of you know, medical school and relationships kind of disappeared. Mm. And I felt this very deep peace and deep connectedness. Wow. You know, that's an interesting, you know, I, I love how you focus on this idea of connectedness because it, it feels like if we could diagnose our planet right now, and, and I, yeah. I, I read a recent book by uh, Johan Hari called Lost Connections, and he he really details kind of the rise in depression, anxiety, and, you know, yeah. the, the obviously SSRIs and, the, and you know, and all, all of the stuff. But that what he was what he's arguing for, what he's presenting in his book is to say the issue that that we're facing in our culture right now is we, we are losing connection, losing connection with ourselves, 
losing connection mm -hmm. with others, losing connection yeah. with our planet and losing connection with a greater sense of we'll call it spirit, whatever, yeah. something yeah. larger than us, right? That we are yes. not this lone, isolated individuals trying to make it through the, the world here. We yes. are interconnected with one another as these vibrant living creatures. And you felt that in 1963, <laughs> you must have been amazed at the experience and then how do i get other people to have this experience that must have been yep. your next day going how do we how do we use this and utilize this to help heal people well you know i could see the work going on then and really i think that cemented my desire to work in psychiatry because mm. i could see the power of i mean i was really interested in psychotherapy but i could see that with here with lsd that there was this other whole healing potential because um, my family were refugees in Europe after the Second World War. Um, you know, we were Lithuanians who fled Lithuania. So, you know, and I came to Australia when I was five um, in a DP camp. So inside of me, that's the world that I had lived in, which was complicated. Parents were frightened. We were moved from here to there. We were brought to Australia any anyway you can imagine particularly what we know now about the Ukraine that my parents and I came out of that kind of a scene so and even though we, we didn't dwell on it my parents actually did not talk about it I think somewhere in me there was an anxiety that I wasn't always uh, you know in touch with but something let go with that experience mm. you know That's to really amazing this peaceful connection and and we, you didn't even have like we talked so much about set and setting and having intentions yeah Did, we're in 63 were you aware of that did you you're just like no we're just trying it and see what's happening you didn't know about we should set intentions and here's how trauma works and you know yeah and, you know, yeah it's amazing the psychiatrist you know this wasn't the first time he had done this so it was a format that he trusted and because he had you know the nurses in the room who were in uniform by the way um you know there was enough support if people were distressed um but there was nothing about setting intention like i was there to, to i've never seen this before it was like okay i'm curious let's see how this is so how do we get from, you know, and, and I kind of know the answer, but if you think about that, right, 1963, you have this amazing experience, this unitive, you know, encompassing experience where you feel a connection. And what you realize is one of the downlines is that there's some kind of release somatically or whatever. We don't even fully know yet, but there's this trauma that lives in our body that you might even have inherited from your parents. You obviously experienced it as from zero to five, these really key years attachment yeah. injuries that you would have you know there it would have been traumatic to be five years old in a refugee in a new country and not knowing where your home is so mm -hmm. somehow your body naturally released that during that during that experience and we're we're you know a healing began i mean it, it's how do you make sense of that now as a psychiatrist having the language to make sense of what happened to people to not just you but what happens to people when they have these altered state experiences and are able to release trauma what it talks about is that our bodies actually do have an innate intelligence and with a substance like i don't know mmdma, MDMA holotropic breathwork psilocybin lsd that healing knowledge in ourselves 
really takes us to where we need to go. Hmm. So in all of these forms, you know, the setting the intention is important, really getting a sense of where what questions you would like answered. But then we always say you also then need to let it go because hmm. you're unconscious your own healing intelligence actually knows where to take you. Mm. So that's, that's a fascinating concept, it, isn't it? Yeah. Cause, and it's all connected to the other questions that you have, but it's kind of one of the fundamental questions. Yeah. You know, you know what you're <clears throat> You, you, I, I think about this idea um, and I try to explain it to someone with like when we cut our finger, right? You don't have mm -hmm. to cognitively think, how, how do I get the white blood cells to do their work and yes. do the clotting? How do I get my lungs to do its, you know, what they need to do? It just happens. There is an yes. intelligence that our body wants to come to, you know, homeostasis, to balance, to center. And, and you're yeah. saying these substances kind of disengage parts of our brain that, you know, that kind of keeps us proud. We call the default mode network, but it That's helps right. that go offline so that the inner healing intelligence can come on and help bring you to a sense of balance inside. Is that kind of what you're saying? It, it is what I'm saying. And that it opens you to actually go to those wounded areas if, if that's your history and heal at that level in a very mm -hmm. fundamental level. And, you know, like with my experience, it had to do with reconnecting with the world and feel some trust in the world. Mm. So it's, it's very deep work. So then what, like for you personally, then what happened from 1963, from that experience, you start now training, getting, you, you said you got into psychiatry because you're like, this is going to help people. I've yeah. we've got a tool in our tool belt as psychiatrists now that, mm -hmm. that can actually move the needle on some of these big issues yeah. Uh, so what happens for the next 10 years for you? Well, what happens, I mean, I then do make the decision to move to Canada at the end of medical school because the psychiatrist that I'd had the LSD with had moved back to Canada. Mm. Um, but around the same time, LSD became illegal. Mm. So that was the end. I mean, it was, in a sense, for myself and it was for Stan Groff because Stan had come to... North America to work with LSD and continue his LSD research. Mm. Like he came to the US with suitcases, not full of clothes, but full of psychiatric notes of the mm. people that he'd worked with in Czechoslovakia. Yeah, thousands of patients. Like yeah. it's little, I think I, I was reading four, four to 5,000 documented, you know, safe. Mm -hmm trusted experiences that transform people's lives. I mean, how much more data do you want? You know, yeah. I, I'm just, I'm, I, I guess I'm, I, I'm really starting this conversation, Ingrid, but I, I just, I'm, I'm amazed that the reticence of, of FDA and Health Canada and other uh, NHS in, in UK to start kind of opening up to go, we have the data. It's old, but we've got lots of safe data. It's, yeah. oh, this must be frustrating for you as a psychiatrist to watch this. You know that the Canada has a part in this because there was all those psychiatrists in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, of at, them. Weyburn, at the Weyburn Mental Hospital in, in Weyburn, Weyburn Saskatchewan. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and that was kind of a fluke because they were looking for psychiatrists. They came and they had this also this interest and some experience with psychedelics. And I think at that point, because Weyburn really was one of those kind of backwoods hospitals with, pay, with chronic patients, mm. 
And so I don't know why exactly they were given permission to use LSD in these substances with those patients, but they were allowed to, but they were allowed to work with the sickest, mm. the ones who'd been in there for years that nobody was even paying attention to. Mm. And then, you know, what happened is that they could see that these people that all were seen as chronic schizophrenic were a whole mixture of things. Some had PTSD and some had, you know, other more depressive disorders. And there's great results from them. Yeah. So that all got buried too. I know. And that's just the, such a tragedy. It's it's not like it was tried and found wanting or no. it was tried and found risky or yeah. any of that. It was tried and it was effective and amazing. And yeah. the war on drugs came on and they wanted to get, you know, they wanted people to go to war. And uh, so he was like, how do I criminalize these substances? And we're talking about, you know, the United States in 19, yeah. uh, the late 60s, early 70s here. And then Canada followed suit and, and criminalized a schedule one, uh, both LSD and psilocybin. Yeah. And, uh, and now here we are, 2022, yeah. waking up to what we lost yeah. 50 years ago. Yeah. And I want to also mention AA, you know, because initially LSD was really seen as very effective for addictions. Mm. And you know, Bill of the whole AA movement had LSD himself. He could see its benefits. So lots of varied experiences. Yeah, that's an amazing piece of history that most people yeah. don't know, right? That the founder yeah. of AA saw the yeah. potential of psychedelics to treat alcoholism. Yes. Uh, and, and that's how he founded this program is like, let's put a program together and use it with psychedelics to help people get off alcohol. And it's uh, and it seems to be incredibly effective at helping people get off the craving for alcohol. Yeah. We yeah. see that with smoking cessation. We yeah. see that with, you know, uh, uh, other other drugs as well. Uh, the yeah. potential for psychedelics. Let's now go a bit global. We're, let's move from you come to Canada. Um, yeah. Were you able to still get involved in research at art? Was that just kind of 30 years of like silence when it comes to psychedelics for you? Or were you able to find places where you could still practice and do some of that work? No, it was complete silence. <sighs> complete silence. Wow. Complete oh, there's, there's, I'll just be honest with you. There's part of me that weeps. I'll just yeah, be, absolutely. I'm looking at you right now going, you are a skilled psychiatrist with a heart to help people. And they yeah. took away the tool that could have helped millions of people from you. That is tragic and awful. From, and for many people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, wow. I mean, you know, I, I did have um, an M, my first MDMA experiences just before it was made illegal oh. because, you know, at that point it had been used for mostly for couples therapy in the U S and a friend of ours had some MDMA. So I had that experience. And that too was, of course, remarkable mm. um, in terms of, again, heart opening, softening. Um, MDMA is not actually a, 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 a psychedelic. Yeah. It's more as an empathogen. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, what it does, because it diminishes pain, pain shame, fear, um, and really makes it possible, again, to look at really difficult issues. Mm. So, again, he was a tool that was being used very successfully. Um, and then it was legalized. Mm. So, clearly, the whole thing was kept being shut down. And I think it's why when I first heard of Stan Graf, and um, by that now it's the 80s. So, in the 80s, I, a friend of mine had gone to Esalen, and yeah, in California. In California. 
and came back saying what an extraordinary process it is. Um, and by that time I'd had, you know, been in therapy and I was in the process of a divorce and I felt like I wanted to do some work because, you know, I was, I'd been through a stressful time and, but I didn't want to have to tell my whole story again. Like, how can I get to the heart of the matter? And so she suggested Stan and Christina, and they were doing a group on Hollyhock, you know, on Cortez Island. Oh, yeah, on the Van- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I did this five-day workshop that was called The Hero's Journey, and it was extraordinary. Mm. That's that with- based on Joseph Campbell's kind of the hero's journey model? Well, just in, in that context, mm, okay. in the sense that here is a therapeutic journey, which is, I mean, the, the journey you're and the demons that you're um, meeting. Battling and facing and yeah. Yeah, but it's yourself. So mm-hmm. it's like going into those depths, facing your demons mm-hmm. and, and coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole process with Stan and Christina with, you know, the music and the expression and the body work. Seriously, my mind was blown. I thought, wow, mm-hmm. and this is no substance involved set and setting you could see they were so important yeah i mean we were lucky because hollyhock is gorgeous but you know stan talked to us a lot christina did so you really had a sense that this was a man who had done his own work and understood this territory Mm. and hearing his you know the, the teaching because he really started looking at you know the theories behind personality and the unconscious and in a way that was very different, I mean, including not only Freud, but Jung. So there was a whole education that I had there. Mm-hmm. And then I had these two breathworks. Can, can we can we just give our audience a little bit of background? Because a lot of people, uh, you know, haven't haven't experienced that. The, you know, and, and I and just to set it up, you know, Stan Groff is realizing that altered state work was so crucial. He had already seen this in yeah. the early 50s uh, in all of his work. And then he discovered the ability that we could do this naturally as human beings with yeah. a certain breathing pattern. It's a rapid yeah. breathing pattern of a sustained mm-hmm. breathing that gets mm-hmm. you after, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I've had it a few times, but not maybe as deep as a holotropic breath work, but it gets you into a state of uh, where it's an, it's an altered state using breath can you describe it for people because people won't really believe that you can have as profound experience on breath work as you can on on psychedelics uh, tell me about the process yeah well stan saw that a lot of cultures had these prolonged ceremonies of drumming staying up all night different kind of breathing patterns and so he started um and, and in fact he'd use it a little bit at the end of some people's lsd sessions Mm. if they weren't quite through it and so the process as you mentioned is the breathing Mm. and in a way the breathing doesn't have to be anything special it just has to be deeper and faster and more effective than your regular breath Mm. so it means you you sort of have to work at it it's Mm -hmm. not not pleasant because you know you're breathing beyond what you naturally would want and you can feel your energy rising and there is a move you can feel that you are shifting out of your regular Mm. state Mm. some people where issues are close or if they're quite experienced they move into the altered state really within minutes Mm. some people it takes longer because they may be more held more frightened and with it is this very powerful music Mm. it has to be music that people don't know on a daily Mm -hmm. You know, it's the daily experience. So a lot of it is 
from other cultures, powerful, driving. A lot of drum. A lot, a lot of drum. Mm-hmm. A lot of drum and a lot of loud and it's loud. Yeah. Well, it's designed to overwhelm you it's so that you get out of your head. You want to get yeah. out of your head. Yeah. And you see, with the overbreathing, there is some vasoconstriction in the cortical level. So that default mode network is also diminishing. Mm. And with that, you're unconscious, the lower aspects of you know your brain, your survival, your emotional centers, they all they all open. See, that's an interesting, uh, you know, what happens is those other kind of my, my day-to-day decision-making, what am I going to have for dinner? You know, that person said that to me yesterday, all of that begins to fade away in the background and your heart begins to open and you Mm -hmm. begin to have access to information and feelings and sensations in your body that you don't normally have access to. And it's in that time that you can talk, you can share, you can open up, you can express, you can emote, you can cry, you can laugh, whatever your body needs to do. And he found a program to do that in with breath work. And I want to make it really clear. He didn't necessarily just invent this. He, he pulled this out of ancient uh, shamanic cultures that, uh, you know, Michael Harner has done a lot of work on. He's uh, one of the the top kind of anthropologists looking at shamanic around the world. And he begins to trace all of the cultures, including our first nations here in in British Columbia and around Canada, indigenous cultures, whether that's in the longhouse, they Mm -hmm. use a drum and dancing and breath work as a way to put people into altered states right so this isn't new this is ancient as humanity is he just began to pull it into a western model exactly exactly you know it's it's not new at all and the models of and, and understanding of what happens also derives from all those cultures um and and so in the western model it came that you know, it's done with people in pairs. So one person does the breathing and the other person is their sitter, is like yeah. a big caretaker. And mostly during the experience, people are encouraged not to talk mm. unless they really have something they're confused about, that they really stay with the inward experience. Because the difference between breath work and a psychedelic is with breath work, there are still times when your mind kind of sneaks in mm. Says like, what's this really about? Or you know, I don't want to do that. It's ridiculous. But the encouragement is always to push that away, mm-hmm. breathe some more, and then go back to inside. Mm-hmm. And that fast breathing does not have to go on for the whole three hours of the session. It really is getting the engine on, and it's mm-hmm. your accelerator and your brake in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's it's not you know people try to do it on their own. And I think you can get a little bit of the beginning kind of release, but you really do need a setting and somebody with you yeah. to take it to those really yeah. deep levels. And I think the group dynamic, like we we haven't fully uh, in the West understood the power of, of group dynamics, right? The What happens when we as creatures yeah. resonate in a group of people, our limbic part of our brains begin to come at match each other. And we are be, we, we, with the connection, eye contact, face, all yeah. that kind of stuff regulates our nervous system. So yeah. I think when you start adding that in with a, a proper setting, with the music, with, you know, and I know they do a lot of Mandela drawing after, yeah. 
you know, draw that circle yeah. and begin to just stay in the right part of your brain. Yeah. Don't analyze, stay in that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's so many incredibly insightful things that Stan uh, and his team developed uh, for us. How, yeah. how for us, how do we take those ideas and begin to use them in some of the psychedelic medicines? Because not everyone is going to connect into a large group of breathers, you know, and finding a holotropic breath, yeah. work, you know, so we're finding these tools like MDMA and psilocybin. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's been your experience now? Let's talk a little bit about your MDMA for trauma. Uh, some of the, the clinical trials that you've been a part of uh, talk me a little yeah. about those and, and, and what kind of uh, trauma were you working with and how effective uh, was uh, the MDMA for that? Yeah. Like, I want to say that Understanding breathwork and the experience of breathwork and those expanded states is an amazing entry into working with psychedelics mm. and substances, both for the therapist and for the client. You know, in my fantasy clinic, one day mm -hmm. we're going to have all these modalities, and then we can see who's ready for breathwork first, who needs MDMA, and when do we move into psychedelic substances? And mm. um, so it's a, a great entry and also the thing with holotropic breath work is that if someone who is really getting very frightened or overwhelmed they can sit up and stop the experience right right and get support yeah unlike um, when you're on five grams of psilocybin you can sit up you can try to sit up if you want but it's not yeah, going to happen it's not going to happen it's yeah. not going to happen yeah it's so, going to take you and you know i did um holotropic breathwork then for 15 years here in Vancouver and could see the way my, my patients, my PTSD patients shifted once we could see we were stalemated with, with the work we were doing in the office. And so moving into working with breathwork was a huge opening and taking a lot of these people out of their stuck terrified places into a place where they really could rejoin the world. Mm. And knowing that meant that, um, you know, I, I, Rick Doblin was in that first training group of mine. And, you know, Rick is mm, yeah, head, head of maps. Yeah. And, you know, really, he's been like a dog with a bone. I mean, he's carried, you know, psychedelics for therapy since, well, the late 70s and the 80s mm. for sure. And so he and I met at a, at a conference and we started talking and he was talking about his interest now in working with MDMA and I was interested and so when it came to looking at bringing the research to Canada he contacted me and I was working at that point with a psychologist here Andrew Feldmar who also has a history of you know understanding and working with psychedelics and so we started in 2009 believe it or not the whole idea of psychedelics as therapy and PTSD was chosen because I mean, it is a severely debilitating illness situation for a lot of people, and it's measurable. Mm. And so you could see who, you know, because the work needed to be with people who could, you could see there was demonstrable change mm -hmm. in what happened. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you want the before and after, but you want metrics so you can prove to Health Canada that these modalities are actually effective, you know, not yeah. just like, it made me feel connected to the universe. They're like, well... Did it actually move? Can you get back to work? Are your, are your relationships healing? You know, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff. Um, and I mean, the main thing that MDMA does, as I mentioned, because of how it diminishes pain and shame and um, increases trust, is it gives you 
a much different platform from which to look at your own history, your own trauma history in particular, mm. so that you know people could talk about things that have been overwhelming for them, either in childhood or in war situations or first responders, like a lot of people have been faced with trauma, they could go back and really revisit those situations and reevaluate them, see what they did right, grieve mm. what did not work out, but gain a completely different perspective about what happened and about themselves mm. and and were then able to move on from there. And without being overwhelmed by the trauma, right? Because that's what's, I think that's what's so unique is like most people think the last thing I want to do is talk about my trauma. Every time mm -hmm. I get close to it, I get overwhelmed and I just have to develop a strategy to keep myself safe from never thinking yeah. or exposing myself to it. And you're yeah. saying this substance actually, you know, helps the amygdala calm down that fear yes. circuit of our brain so we can get up close to those moments in our life and go back yeah. to it. And, you know, and when you start thinking about, you know, from some parts work, you know, guys like Dick Schwartz and others, they begin yeah. to see that these that that these kind of substances allow you to do this internal parts work and help yeah. these younger parts that got trapped maybe at age five, yeah. nothing that you did, but you can help unburden that yes. without fear. That's an incredible opportunity. I mean, it's not to say that in the therapy itself, people aren't afraid. I mean, it's, it's tough work for the trauma mm. survivor, anybody taking MDMA for therapy. It isn't just a feel good, nope. the world wonderful situation. I mean, it is work and there's pain and there's, you know, physical Fears. release yeah. and emotional release. Um, and the session is long. Um, you know, the, the active part with the MDMA is probably the first four to six hours. And then even when the drug is diminishing because so much information has come up, there's a lot of processing that happens. Mm. And then we meet again the next morning. So, you know, that's what happens with MDMA. We meet early in the morning. The person has, is, you know, it's, and people do have to come off their SSRIs, mm. off their traditional antidepressants, anxiolytics, because they block the action of MDMA. Mm. Right. MDMA depends on a big surge of serotonin, yeah. which just can't happen while you're on these medications now is so, that different <clears throat> is that different than uh, than psilocybin because psilocybin is on a different the 5h2a receptor in your brain and that's different than mdma um you know i i can't uh, that part of it i, I don't remember to retain mm -hmm. but yeah. what i know is that um it is not people can stay on their ssris when they take psilocybin um, but some people find the experience is slightly attenuated. Muted. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think that that's where there's, there's like, a, to me, that's where the huge area of research, because yeah. if, because if you think about how many people on are on SSRIs, it's just like, what is it? You know, it, I don't even know the numbers, but it's staggering, right? It's staggering. So if you, if you're actually saying you have to get off of them, that's going to be a big shift. If we can find a substance that will work to allow yeah. people to stay on them, have an experience, and then slowly over the next six months fade them off because yeah. they have had some shifts in their trauma. That to me would be like a game changer for our planet. Yeah. And that's all still being investigated. Mm. Um, you know, what will happen to people who, you know, have needed the SSRIs? Yeah, yeah. How that, the interplay between that and using psilocybin. But... And some and some people giving psilocybin would say you need to come off your SSRI. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I've had experience of people just lowering this SSRI doses, you know, not taking it for a couple of days before, and they have powerful experiences. Mm. Like, I, I don't see any issue. I mean, there's the concern about serotonin syndrome, you know, the, mm -hmm. the blood pressure going yeah. too high. But so far from what we can see with psilocybin, that's more a theoretical um, concern that in practice, it really, as far as I know, hasn't happened. Mm. So there's there are still all of those discussions going on. And of course, it's all happening more slowly because these substances are still so controlled. I know that, that the schedule, the fact that there's schedule one is, yeah. you know, like it's ridiculous because you can't even then kind of, you know, you have to do all these special access program applications or yes. section 56 exemptions, yeah. which is what brings us to the topic today. You know, I mean, this yeah. is Health Canada about a year ago, we're giving some section 56 yeah. exemptions to individual patients that wanted psilocybin therapy and Theracil was successful in getting a whole bunch of them. But then yeah. they, uh, you know, over the last year, they have sh kind of shut that program down and said, oh, let's do special access, which is kind of a, a group using a physician and these kinds of things. But they haven't really, that hasn't really opened up anything. That's yeah. really kept it really locked down yeah. and it's not allowing therapists, physicians, psychiatrists like yourself to have access to these tools and I guess for me as a you know outsider looking in uh, you know not being a, a medical provider I have this idea that like Canadians trust our physicians our psychiatrists our therapists we've said listen as a physician you you can you can prescribe you, you know methadone you could prescribe you know any drug you want if you think that's best for your patient right so yeah. you can we we've even said in canada you can prescribe a drug that will end someone's life in consultation with the medical yeah. assistance and dying We've already said that that's a Canadian, as a Canadian, you have yeah. a right as a citizen to in consultation with your therapist yeah. and physician, you can have yeah. that done to you, but you cannot have psilocybin yeah. when you have yeah. end of life anxiety with a physician. That yeah. is absolutely ludicrous and wrong and it needs to change in Canada. Yeah. And also just the plain fact that psilocybin is actually a mushroom that yeah. you can pick in the woods or in a field. Yeah, it's so not a, yeah. It's not a synthetic drug that we're asking, uh, you know, some pharmacy to provide. We're saying, I want to grow some mushrooms under my bed and have it because I'm going to die in six months. And you're saying I can't do that. That's illegal. Yeah. And unfortunately, at the moment, also the government is insisting that for research and for you know patients who've been accepted into the programs, a few that were, have to use synthetic psilocybin. Yeah, that's ridiculous, too. Because the mushroom has a lot of other ingredients that we may not even have, that we haven't um, identified, that add a lot more to the experience mm. than just isolating this one chemical. Yeah, I mean, I know that there are issues of, well, we, we want to have a controlled supply. We want to be able to make sure that, you know, if you're going to... Yeah, you know, buy buy psilocybin and buy, buy mushrooms that you're not going to have something tainted. And so I understand the supply chain, yeah. but we're we're we're. I look at Oregon right now and Oregon is, you know, really progressive. They are, they are not making uh, psilocybin legal. They're saying mushrooms. That's very key. It's the natural yes. mushrooms that they want to say you can use it for. And the, the line is well-being, not because you are diagnosed with some kind of problem. It's mm -hmm. if you want to access this growing organism as yes. a citizen of Oregon, you should mm -hmm. have the right to do that for well-being. To me, yes. that's the gold standard. Yes. That's the gold standard to me. 
Because, you know, psilocybin is completely safe. It's non-addictive. It's not toxic. Um, if you do happen to, you know, by mistake or design, take too much of it, you'll throw it all up. Yeah. I mean, it's actually one of the differences between taking the natural substance and the synthetic is that the, the body doesn't quite know that about the synthetic. Mm. Whereas with a mushroom, you vomit it up. Right. So the body has a different relation to. Yeah. It's a, bu a built in safety mechanism with this, uh, with, with the mushroom. And, uh, yeah. you know, so for you, you know, what, what would you say to these legislators and, uh, you know, health Canada officials, if you, if they were sitting with you, if you could make your appeal as a person working on the front lines with mm -hmm. people in trauma and, and particularly the context that we're in, we just came out of yeah. a global pandemic and we're not really even out of it. No. Everyone's anxieties have gone up our fears, yeah. our isolation. Think about what we've done. We've isolated billions of people from each other. And, yeah. and the only way our nervous systems know how to calm down is when we're with others and we can regulate. And we've said, we got to stay inside. You got to be alone, right? So yeah. you're in that situation. What would you say to Health Canada when it comes to access to psilocybin? The biggest piece is that they have to open their minds to these substances that now are dealt with, with old mythology and really prejudice. Mm -hmm. Somehow the drugs have become linked to crime, overdoses, people going crazy. It's not really what they're about. Mm -hmm. These actually are substances that are <laughs> beneficial to the human organism and that we hear in anecdotal reports of people who've taken mushrooms on their own or taken MDMA on their own and a whole piece of their trauma, their depression has lifted. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there isn't anybody dying from psilocybin. I mean, you know that on Hastings Street here in Vancouver, there's a pharmacy where you can go, you, you can buy mushrooms. And across the street, just down the block, <clears throat> is also the place where you can go and take any medicine that you have and you wanted tested for toxic substances, for fentanyl, is right across the street. So that, you know, you can see that there is only the, an attempt to keep this in, in, for people's use in a safe way. Mm. And, and people learn from these substances. People worry about bad trips. I mean, a bad trip is really a piece of difficult material that's coming up for you. It's not that the drug has done something bad to you and that we know how to support people, encourage people to take it in a safe setting, do it with a friend. You know, all of those safeguards can be, people can be educated about that. Mm. And so if the prejudice could just go and we could just look at the pure research the reason, the whole fact that people don't become addicts or, you know, their lives decompensate. In fact, their lives have improved. Then you can see these as beneficial substances, you know, to a lot of people. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, it's, I think the front edge of the wedge, I mean, I, I, the charter challenge is a really is a, is a great yeah. opportunity for us to look at this issue because they're saying we're looking, we're going to start with saying end of life cancer diagnosis. Yes. Can we yeah. give them access to psilocybin? And once we kind of, just like they did with cannabis, once you argue that this substance can, is, is a medicine, because that's the, yeah. the argument is a schedule one is that this is not a medicine, it's not helpful and it's dangerous. It's yeah. a medicine, it's helpful, it's not, a, not dangerous, it's not addictive and it can help people. 
So once that maybe begins to change, I think we can move beyond just we're going to treat people with end of life cancer or even trauma, and we can begin to use it for how it's been used in, in cultures around the world for yeah. connection, family healing. You know, I, kind of, you know, I remember talking to Mark Hayden, who was mm-hmm. head of MAPS Canada for a while. And I asked him at the end of the interview, I said, Mark, what does good look like in 10 years? Mm-hmm. And, he, and without kind of batting an eye, he said, what good looks like in 10 years is a mom and dad with, uh, you know, an 18 year old uh, daughter who is anorexic they do, you know, they do a session of MDMA together with a therapist and there's a bonding and healing and a recognition of this, this girl's beautiful divine nature and begins to be freed from that kind of thing. But can imagine doing psychedelics with your children. This is like, I'm talking about, you know, over 16 or 17, but this is, this is where we need to be going as a culture, not restricting, opening up more with these substances that have so much potential for healing and connection. And I want to really, really stress that the changes that happen with these medications need to be embedded in proper therapy. Mm. You know, it's not to say that people won't have experiences on their own that can also be beneficial. But like, for instance, this, the family situation that you're mentioning, you know, there need to be parameters for that. And there needs to be somebody, because these substances, you never know where it's going to take you. Mm-hmm. And it may take you somewhere that is surprising or darker than you realize. And you do need support or someone who knows how to help you navigate mm-hmm. that without then you getting frightened, the person with you getting frightened, and like once fear enters the room in you or the person being with you, the whole thing escalates. And that's mm. how people ended up in emergency, which mm. then made it all the worse. So, and therapeutically, the follow-up is, is really critical. Mm. You know, yes, you have the life-changing experience and then you need to integrate it, understand it, and have a whole period of time where you really learn what how to manage the changes that have occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, I think that's a... It's not a magic bullet. No, it's not a magic bullet. And I, and I don't want to kind of give this idea that we can just, you know, like a Timothy Leary model, right? Just let's just dose no. the whole world yeah, and we'll be all no. be good, right? Um, yeah. That's not what I think anyone is arguing for. I, I think the, the, the major piece that we're saying is, can we allow the experts, you know, therapists, yeah. psychiatrists to have access to a tool? That's all. So that exactly. it's up to them and their patient, whether they use that tool or not. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. and I think let's start with that. Let's start yeah. with giving psychiatrists, physicians, and therapists access to these tools yeah. so that they can make informed decisions with their patients about what's best for them. And you are a living example of how effective that model can be working with your patients, working with trauma, helping yeah. people shift. I mean, give me a kind of, obviously you can't use specifics because it's confidential, but you must have seen some powerful transformations that you can't see in regular therapy. Can you take us into a couple of those experiences so that our audience can feel how powerful these things can be? Someone gets stuck in their whole life sometimes, 30, 40, mm-hmm. 50 years. And yeah. in a course of maybe six months of work, you can really see them unlock. Can you give me some of that? I want to feel that from you. Yeah. Well, the first example I think of is actually an example from Breathwork because um, what my partner and I pioneered is doing ongoing groups. And the thing with the groups is, and I think starting to do some of this work with psychedelics and having a group aspect to it, I think will be really important because 
you know, people feel so isolated in their very experiences. But this is a woman who um, was clearly black, with black curly hair, born to a mother in Northern British Columbia, who was white. Her father, the, the, the mother's husband was white, all the kids were white. And the mother, in fact, had had an affair with a train conductor who was coming through town. And I guess they'd slept together and this pregnancy ensued. And so the, the mother in particular insisted that everyone treat this little girl as if she was white. No one would acknowledge that she was colored. And so she was mistreated, she was scrubbed, she was left in a pram outside in the winter. Horrific, horrific. So now, you know, she's an adult, she's working, trying to work as an artist, but she's so anxious that really her life isn't moving. Um, and she's really symptomatic and afraid. So with the work with breathwork, you know, she knew all of that on a cognitive level. But what could you read with breathwork? And I mean, I, I think this would happen with MDMA as well. What started to happen is she started feeling cold in the groups. But all we knew she was cold. We would wrap her up, hold her. Next group, still cold, the same, the same. And then by the third or fourth group, I finally said to her, this isn't about your physical coldness. This is about the coldness you were born into and you know, all of the ways in which you were mistreated. And with that, the depth of her crying was huge. But it's like the whole history of that coldness and being encased in this level of rejection dropped away. And it was something that, you know, even though you could talk about it for forever, having that visceral experience of that's what the coldness is that I carry, that's what makes me afraid. And her whole body changed, her view of life changed, and her life changed. Wow. It's wow. it's it's just absolutely amazing when you're up close to these stories and you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I've had the privilege of being, uh, I'm, do, I, I'm involved in doing lots of group work and uh, connected to a couple of clinics. And I've been yeah. up close to some retreats and seeing some of these shifts that happen for people talking about, you know, an addict that's been trapped in a, a, a shame cycle for yeah. 30 years. Can you imagine every day waking up, just feeling like you are a, a, a piece mm -hmm. of garbage that you, you know, why am I alive every, you know, and then to have an experience where with the right therapeutic context, finally can access that shame and unlock it and release it and feel yeah. that connection back into himself. I watched this and to see him now, six months later, still yeah. alive, vital without shame. It's yeah. unbelievable until you see it. You, it's, it almost feels like, like, yeah. you know, you, you go to these old school uh, religious texts and they talk about miracles, right? And you're like, well, this is what a miracle looks like. The transformation of someone who's been trapped in PTSD their whole life and transformed over six months, their life's back, their marriage is back, their fathering, their job, everything that's vital in life as a human being is becomes tainted by trauma. And you can yeah. have something that can help people engage in life again. Oh, yeah. and it, I mean, it sounds so simple, yeah. But it has to do with how you experience that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's where with somebody who's, again, being traumatized by family, because often, you know, that's the first break without trust in the world and a feeling about themselves is family trauma. Mm -hmm. And with MDMA, with I think 
once you're in that state, that open state with the psychedelic, I think even physical touch can really be reparative in a way that it doesn't happen, you know, in, in an ordinary state of consciousness. And we can know a lot of things intellectually, but it's not till we really experience them on the deeper level that actually the shift happens. Mm. I mean, my practice changed dramatically once I could move the patients I worked with you know, into, I mean, I keep talking about breath work because that's what I've been able to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw what happened for the people in the MDMA research that I did, you know, how they were able to access very difficult pieces of information and work on it. And, I, you know, often understanding what really happened that you never knew before, mm. maybe frightening, sometimes very, very upsetting, but it gives you a handle. It isn't like there's this you know, ghost inside of you that's controlling your life and you don't know what it is. Mm. You know, it's hard to learn about what your trauma actually was, but it gives you the beginning of being able to climb out of it and, you know, reclaim your full personhood. Wow. I love that line. Oh man. Reclaim your full personhood. That that's like, that should be a tagline, uh, Dr. Pacey, <laughs> about what, you know, what psychedelics, like there it is. I want to, you yeah. can patent that one because that's a reclaim <laughs> your full personhood. Uh, oh my goodness. That just, when you said that, I just felt this yeah. opening inside of me because that to me is a beautiful summary of what happens <laughs> in these kinds of experiences in a therapeutic way. It, it unlocks something and allows people to reclaim something that is theirs by birth. They've yeah. always been this person, right? I mean, it's, it's all, uh, you know, it's all the stuff that's happened to us, you yeah. know, in our starting from our birth. I mean, Stan is, is perinatal matrix of, yes. you know, the fact exactly. that many, many people with a particular psilocybin and LSD relive yeah. their birth traumas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you think what, there's no way. Oh yeah. yeah. You yeah. begin to get 3000 points of data and you begin to yeah. see this is exactly you're moving from darkness into light in a trapped kind of place through an yeah. opening with pressure and contraction into, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible, uh, it's an incredible matrix that he's put together. Yeah. So, I yeah. Mean, I I, when I first heard Stan talk about it, I kind of went, hmm, I don't know about this. But over my 15 years of working with breathwork, you saw it again and again. Yeah. And, and I experienced it myself because, you know, I did a lot of breath work as part of my training. And it's, I mean, the whole issue also of the therapist having that experience in order to be able to better understand what their client is going through. Mm. Therapists need to have had their MDMA experience. They need to have had a, a psilocybin experience. I mean, to really moment, understand that, like you cannot ask someone to go in an altered state if you yourself have never been there and understand yeah. that landscape. You're inviting yeah. them into a really complicated world that yeah. you need to know the map of. Yes, uh, you know, absolutely. And you need to know, you know, Stan's map, actually, which includes, you know, birth process, it includes your biographical and it includes the transpersonal, the whole spiritual realms where you may feel like you're you know, identified with the universe. You may feel like you're an eagle. I had that experience of mm-hmm. feeling like an eagle and you really feel like you're the eagle mm-hmm. or you know, you, um, some people meet God, mm-hmm. which is extraordinary. Yeah, I did. Yeah. On, on one of my experiences, yeah. uh, you know, here I, 
Here I'm an ex um, a minister who walked away from uh, his faith because of its narrowness and its yeah. insistence on certainty and its rejection of, of gay and lesbian people as mm -hmm. full members. I couldn't believe in that kind of being anymore. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, 15 years of kind of uh, nothing, wandering and trying to figure out what my spirituality yeah. was. And then I had an experience where I yeah. met this divine being. And I don't know how to describe it anything else but that. I yeah. don't know. I don't have language for that other than that, Dr. Pacey. And it's always the hard thing about these expanded states. I mean, part of the definition of them is that you can't put words to it. Mm -hmm. like Enormity the experience. You know, I had the experience of feeling the, the most extraordinary feeling of positive energy light mm. and light coming from my hands in ordinary light of day that sounds like oh okay that's pretty weird but it was extraordinary and again it just reminds you that all of these energies are here in the world supporting us hmm. and that we lose touch with them yeah. you know we walk around we have ideas we you know cut off our appreciation of nature and there's a way of and the world needs it right now oh man it needs it i mean if you yeah. think about the climate crisis that we're in yeah. Uh, just that alone, let alone all the other things, we need to really feel our connection with nature in order to feel nature as a as a living organism, as the planet that is asking and crying out, can you please work in tandem with us? Don't yeah. you're not a separate individual. You came out of this planet. We evolved <laughs> out of this place. We need to feel our connection again so yeah. that we can begin to heal and change our practices and how we live on this planet. I think now more than ever, we need these substances. We need them yeah. so badly and we need Health Canada to open up and say, yes, we want to trust our physicians, we want to yeah. trust our, our, our therapists to be able to give them access to these tools. Uh, yeah. we're, we're wrapping up. Dr. Yeah. See, what are some a couple other things that you'd want to make sure the Canadian public understand about these substances? Because you are deeply involved in helping bring these uh, to market and help and helping as many people heal as possible. Yeah. I'd love people to just put away all their preconceived notions or the things that they've read in media or whatever about these dangerous, horrible substances, that a lot of the danger and the horribleness also has to do with the reaction to them. Mm -hmm. That of themselves, they're helpful, they're beneficial. Yes, you need to know what you're doing. You need somebody who knows what it's all about to be with you. But in smaller doses, in they are a way of opening to the world. Um, you know, couples taking MDMA, I mean, it's so reparative of a relationship. And, you know, with psilocybin, really reawakening what we were just talking about. And where we began too about connection. Mm, but I think yeah. it's getting back to that real connectedness um, that these substances also give us a chance to because we open up. Mm, you know, that expanded yeah. state is such a healing state. And to experience it and be able to share that, we can't always live there, but we know it. We've experienced it. And that's how we can move into the world. It, let's say Health Canada um, responds to this in the next six months. And, they, you know, and I, as I've said before, part of a charter challenge is, is about kind of showing Health Canada that kind of we mean business. This needs to be dealt yes. with. You need to look yeah. at this. And they have to make a decision. Do they want to go to the Supreme Court? And, and hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars of taxpayer money to yeah. stop a tool that's healing people. Like, 
you know, hopefully they get to the place of saying, okay, hey, 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 we don't yeah. want to go to court. Can yeah. you guys come back to us with a model that you think yeah. is safe and effective for using these? And, and I think that's a great place to be. And I think your model of using group work and, and therapy and physician uh, is, is a beautiful model for people to land into. And I think it could be help prevent, uh, you know, people from having uncomfortable or difficult circumstances that they can't handle. If they're yeah. with a, a, a therapeutic team, People can, no matter what comes up, it's grist for the mill. Exactly. Absolutely. It is grist for the mill. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, you know, this has uh, been amazing. And I, uh, we let this the dream for a second. What's your dream? Where do you want to be? Let's say three years from now, Health Canada opens this up. And you talked about your dream clinic, right? Where you have these different modalities. We can start you with breath work, yeah. then get you into a heart opening MDMA yeah. experience. And then maybe round three, we bring you into a psychedelic where you feel mm -hmm. the connection to the planet. What would be your dream uh, in the next five years? Well, you, you just described my dream. I mean, there are therapists out there training already so that they can be experienced and responsible. You know, they're waiting for the legalization to happen so that they can begin, you know, helping people right now and that these clinics can happen. Um, all of the work that is being done in secret right now is what's risky. Having it out in the open, the support, the professional backing, the ethics ethics are very important mm -hmm. um we'll open this up to being a tool that will really make a difference to the whole psychiatric and mental health landscape mm -hmm. wow you know i i couldn't agree with you more and thank you so much for for kind of lending your your history and your passion to this effort. I know you're working, uh, you're a, a consultant with Theracil, helping them bring this charter challenge and, and uh, bringing that insight. I know that you've been working in different PTSD clinical trials with MDMA. Yeah. Uh, I, I, we are, our planet is so lucky to have people like you, Dr. Pacey, that are willing to take the risk of saying, yes, I, we need to push the envelope on this one yeah. because there's, this is, this is not just like, mm, let's different, different, you know, different opinions on ice cream flavors. We're talking about people who have trauma and our planet is traumatized right now. We yeah. need these tools now, not five years from now, now. And I really hope that Health Canada wakes up. They feel that the Canadian public is ready for this, that we can trust our physicians, psychiatrists, and therapists, and that we can put together a protocol that's going to help move the needle for people. These are safe, they're effective, and I, I look forward to what they're going to be able to do, not just for trauma. I really believe for no. creativity, yeah. leadership, uh, yeah. couples, uh, all sorts of applications yeah. that we could use for this yeah. one day. Yeah. This is going yeah. to be a game changer. Yeah, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge opportunity that we need to move into and not be afraid of. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Pacey, for coming on the show today. Your comments, insight, and uh, your stories have been absolutely riveting. I hope we can chat again. And uh, yeah. I know that you and I have more to talk about because I've got so many questions around yeah. your work. It's I'm, yeah. I'm developing some models around group work and I'd love to connect with you on that. Yeah, so uh, I'd love to talk to you about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot okay. for coming on Unveiled today. It's been, uh, we've been here with Dr. Ingrid Pacey, a psychiatrist from Vancouver, talking about legalization of their uh, therapeutic, therapeutic psilocybin and MDMA and LSD uh, in Canada, and particularly the Charter Challenge, which is going to be taking place this summer. Uh, Theracil is putting together this challenge 
to help Canadians get access, particularly for end-of-life cancer patients, to this much-needed medicine. And so thanks a lot for joining us today on Unveiled. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye.